You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer, as well as the founder of JustBaseball.com. And in today's episode, we are going to briefly recap the Marlins series against the Nationals. I have to talk about Zach Thompson. That start fired me up, watching Zach Thompson adjust and adapt and continue to improve on the mound, change his pitch usage up a little bit. If you remember, I talked about some of the adjustments I thought that Zach Thompson could benefit from with his pitch usage, maybe even implementing a new pitch a bit more. I think that these are all pitches he had in his bag, but now he was able to refine the breaking ball a bit more, get more comfortable with it, and even through the changeup a bit more than he had in the past. I was so fired up because I just spent that whole podcast, or at least half of it, talking about what Zach Thompson could do in order to unlock a bit more. I honestly didn't think he would continue to make these adjustments start to start, but he looked starkly different, not just because he struck out double-digit batters of the Nationals lineup, not just because of that, but because of the fact that he was totally different with the way he was attacking them, especially left-handers, and I'm excited to talk about that. The Marlins split the series at home with the Nationals, and given the fact that they were on a four-game skid before that, I don't think that losing two out of four splitting with the Nats is a worst-case scenario, especially in a series where you get Scherzer, and the Nationals have been on fire. They really have. They've been propelled by Kyle Schwarber. Juan Soto has really come alive, which I don't think surprises anybody until he ran into Zach Thompson. So I'll talk about that, and then we'll quickly discuss the series ahead as the Marlins have a big one against the struggling Phillies. That's one you really have to win because we saw, and this is actually something I want to lead in with because I saw this just shortly before I started recording, and it was Miguel Rojas on the Chris Rose rotation discussing if he were to be traded, how he would feel about it. And he said, essentially, because he's the greatest human in the world and makes me want to cry now if the Marlins end up trading him, but he said, I love this organization so much that if they trade me, if that's what it takes for them to get better and eventually win a championship, then I'm okay with that. And I mean, oh my gosh, how can you be such a pro's pro? Miguel Rojas is everything you can imagine in a team leader. And the thing is, is I know that they could probably get a decent return for him. He's a great defensive shortstop. He has an expiring contract that's not that expensive. The option can be picked up, and it's not expensive either. And also, he swings it a lot better than he has in the past in his career. He seems to get better every single season offensively. You could imagine which one of the teams that was floated was the Yankees, which would just be absurd if Derek Jeter traded him to the Yankees. But regardless... You could see him tapping into even more power there with his gap-to-gap approach in the short porch and right and left field. Rojas would be a menace in Yankee Stadium. I think he would easily clear an 830 OPS with the way that he hits, and also his defensive value would be just so dramatic for the Yankees because they're dealing with Gleyber Torres at shortstop, and he is a liability defensively. The Marlins would have to get to the point where they're really, really down and out over the next couple weeks if they lose 7-10 to or whatever it may be. Then I wouldn't rule anything out. You would hope that Rojas maybe can come back when his contract expires as clearly he loves this organization. Rojas wants to retire here. Marte 
wants to retire here, and that's the other name that's going to be floated around, and he's definitely going to be traded if the Marlins struggle through this month. And the thing that really stood out to me before I get to these previews and recaps of the two series, the thing that stood out to me that Rojas said is, I mean, they are very well aware of the situation at hand, but it was almost refreshing but weird at the same time to hear Miguel Rojas acknowledge the fact that they have a month to play well enough for this team to be kept together. He literally said it. He said, we have a month to prove that this team can win or else I might be out of here essentially. And that is a wild thing to hear a player acknowledge. But in 2021, when players have podcasts and players are more accessible and they're on Twitch streams and for better or for worse, it's a very clear way to break down that fourth wall and be able to get into the heads and get really intimate, I guess, with a lot of players that will speak their mind a bit more, again, for better or for worse. With Rojas here, it was just clear, hey, we need to win now, and if we don't, then I'm not going to get to stay here, and I want to stay here. I'm hoping that with the way the team loves Marte, with the way the team loves Rojas, that this should light a fire under them a little bit, right? You don't want this team to get broken up and you have a month to prove that you guys can win. This should be another level of urgency that we'll see from the Marlins. It seemed like they've had a bit more urgency in that series against the Nationals after having that conversation that Don Mattingly apparently held with his team, and it was apparently a pretty intense one by all accounts, and they played better. They played better. They did lose game one of the series where it was Cody Poteet, who had his probably his worst start of his professional or major league career, excuse me, against Joe Ross, who was solid. They dropped that one seven to three. Offense explodes against John Lester. Pablo Lopez was phenomenal again in game two. They win that one. And then in game three, another great win, gutsy win, three to two. Zach Thompson was incredible. Good situational hitting by the Marlins, and they win. And then you lose a Max Scherzer start in game four. Yes, the Marlins had their guy in Sandy Alcantara going, but you're facing Max Scherzer. Alcantara didn't have the greatest stuff ever, still had a decent outing, and again, you're facing Max Scherzer, so it is what it is. That's not really a bad split there, and I thought they were playing much better baseball all around, and there was a bit more of an urgency on the field there because I think they realize what the gravity of this situation is. And now let's talk about Zach Thompson, who definitely pitched with some urgency, but also pitched much differently. And I loved it. If you remember last week's episode, and if you didn't hear it, uh, definitely go back and check out what I said about Zach Thompson. But uh, basically to recap what I said is the cutter is the pitch that plays. And in last week's episode, I dove into the specific numbers, lefty versus righty, and and all the specific splits and pitch usage. I'm going to just kind of glance over that, but talk about how he was different in this outing. The cutter is the pitch that is dominant for him. Opponents have really struggled to hit it at all, especially against righties. It is virtually an unhittable pitch. It's been wild to see how good that pitch has been for him. He's six foot seven. He gets a lot of tilt on it, and it's sharp with late bite and a lot of spin. It's a good pitch. The fastball has been a little bit of a liability for him because it's not the highest velo pitch. It's not the best swing and miss. It doesn't have that much life to it, and it's more 93 miles per hour. It sits at about 92. I think he topped at 94 and was bottoming out at 91 in that outing. He spots it okay, and that's a pitch that you got to throw. You got to throw fastball. You can't throw all cutters unless you're a closer like Emmanuel Class A or Mariano Rivera. So if you want to get righties and lefties out, 
then you're going to have to mix something else in besides a cutter and a four-seamer. Before, he was throwing mostly cutter four-seam. He still leans on the cutter and four-seam more than any other pitch, which is fine, but now he's integrated the curveball a lot more because on right-handed hitters, he can go cutter and four-seam for the most part and do well there because the four-seam has a little bit of arm side run. The cutter obviously runs from left or right to left, excuse me, so it would have glove side break away from a righty. So those two pitches work really well off each other, and that's why he's able to dominate righties. I mean, righties have been terrible this season against him. He's been just a menace to right-handed hitters. Through his minor league career, lefties have demolished him, and I talked about that in last week's podcast with the specific numbers, and through this season so far, a majority of the hits off of Zach Thompson are by left-handed hitters. So I was a bit wary heading into this start when you have to face Juan Soto, one of the best left-handed hitters, one of the best hitters, period, in baseball, and then the hottest hitter on the planet who happens to be a lefty in Kyle Schwarber. But all he did was carve up every left-handed hitter in that lineup. It was unbelievable. Josh Bell struck out a couple times, which I might be able to strike out Josh Bell, but he struck out Juan Soto twice. He struck out Schwarber twice, I believe. He struck out Gerardo Parra, another lefty that doesn't really K that often. There was just an impressive ability to get these left-handed hitters. And what it looked like to me is that these left-handed hitters were geared up for a matchup against a guy in Zach Thompson that typically struggles against guys who hit from the left side of the plate. They were ready for everything coming towards them. Cutter coming towards them, fastball that doesn't have that much life, and ready to attack. The difference was that he threw the curveball a ton. He threw it a ton. He threw it 24% of the time and way more to lefties, and it was the best I've seen it. It was a nasty vertical breaking pitch that he racked up six whiffs on. More than any other pitch he threw in that day, more than the cutter, and he actually racked up more whiffs on the fastball than he has in any other start because he threw the changeup a bit more, threw it a total of eight times, which isn't a ton, it's about 10% of the time he threw 90 pitches, but it is more than we've seen it thrown before, and it was enough that left-handed hitters had to think about it. So now you're thinking about a cutter, which will still throw in on the hands of lefties, a four-seamer, which you're not too worried about, but when you have to think about a curveball with vertical break and a changeup, then you've got a lot on your mind as a left-handed hitter. Before, it was more just cutter fastball, and maybe he can locate the curveball, but he struggled to do that in the past. This curveball had much more vertical break than we'd seen. It was much sharper, and he was getting some ugly swings at that pitch. And again, sometimes you can look at the pitch and the shape of it and all of that stuff to determine the quality of it, or you could also just watch the reaction of the hitter. Hitters did not look comfortable against that curveball. And remember, he is six foot seven, and that overhand curveball is going to have a hammer type of break to it that will work really well against lefties. Vertical breaking curveballs are great against lefties, and the fact that he incorporated the changeup a little bit more was awesome as well. He got two whiffs on the cutter, five whiffs on the four seam, six whiffs on the curveball, two whiffs on the changeup, and even got a whiff on the sinker. Just so impressive from Zach Thompson, and now I'm excited to see his next start. We know that he's got the mix already for the righties, and now that curveball is playing against lefties, he could end up being a very serviceable starting pitcher, which would just be absurd. If, if he continues on this trajectory, it would just be absurd. His numbers weren't great in AAA, but I think he got uh, within the hands of Mel Stoudemire Jr., who was like, you're six foot seven, and you already have a dynamite cutter. Let's get this curveball going for you so you can get lefties out more. That's what the benefit is sometimes of getting these guys up to the big leagues. Another guy that I can think of is a recent example 
is Matt Manning. Matt Manning's going to struggle a little bit in the bigs. He was getting shelled in AAA, absolutely shelled. But the Tigers pitching coach, who slips my mind right now, has done a great job developing pitchers at the major league level. You've seen Casey Mize go through some struggles early on and do better. You've seen Tarek Skubal struggle and then get better. You've seen Spencer Turnbull even get better as the years have gone on and he's been at the major league level. So why not send Matt Manning to the bigs and have him work through his issues there? The Tigers aren't competing. While the Marlins had to do it more out of desperation because they needed pitching so desperately, he is potentially getting that more hands-on help at the major league level and getting more unlocked for him because he has all the physical tools and it has been fun to watch. So Zach Thompson is definitely on my watch list. I don't know if this can continue, but the change in pitch usage is a very good sign. If he was just throwing cutters and happened to get lefties on that given day, I'd be like, okay, let's be a bit more cautiously optimistic. But the fact that he made a tangible adjustment to his pitch usage and really had a different looked curveball in this game and had double digit called strike whiffs on three different pitches, 11 called strike whiffs on the cutter, 10 on the four-seamer and curveball. That's some very, very encouraging stuff. So we'll keep our eyes out on Zach Thompson for his next start. A huge boost for this team in the meantime. Edward Cabrera continues to carve in the minor leagues. Maybe it's only a matter of time before the Marlins call him up and give him a shot. I'm going to look ahead at this Marlins series against the Phillies and then what the rest of this month looks like because, right, this is do or die for this team. The worst thing that can happen is they struggle this month and they sell and then forget it. That's it for this season. And we're going to kind of be starting from square one a little bit. I think the team would still be further along than they were earlier in the rebuild, but it would be one step forward, two steps back after last year. So this is a really, really big month. So we'll look ahead outside of just previewing the Philadelphia Phillies series where the Marlins will travel to the Phillies at Citizens Bank Park for that one. Before I get to that, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Wild Alaskan. We all know that we should be eating more fish to get our omega-3s and protein, but the seafood counter can be intimidating. Which fish tastes the best? What type of cut? Can you really be sure of the quality? Wild Alaskan Company takes the guesswork out of buying wild-caught seafood. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably-sourced wild-caught seafood right to your door. You can choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination. And every month, there are different specials to explore. Each shipment contains premium wild-cut, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. The Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended for it to be. Always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership at any time, and they offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Get nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company, and right now you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you go to wildalaskancompany.com slash MLB. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash MLB for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash MLB. Be sure to use that URL so they know that we sent you. Also brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. Built Bar has nine delicious flavors and the occasional limited time flavor, and they've got all of them. Coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, double chocolate, and salted caramel. There's something for everybody. And you probably know this by now, but they are low in calories, low in sugar, low in fat, low in carbs, high in protein. What else could you want from a protein bar? They're covered in chocolate, easy to chew, and great for a keto diet. If you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your first order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your first order at BuiltBar.com. 
So let's preview these games ahead for the Marlins. They've got a nice little matchup in Philadelphia against the Phillies, and this is a struggling, struggling Phillies offense. And it should be interesting to see how the Marlins pitching staff rolls into there. They'll have Trevor Rogers going in game one against Vince Velasquez, and I don't need to jinx the Marlins, but I think it's pretty obvious that that would be a presumed pitching advantage for the Marlins. Rogers has been the Marlins' best pitcher this year, and Vince Velasquez, besides his last start where he was actually decent against a very, very lowly Marlins lineup at the time, has been a punching bag for the fish. So we'll see if the Marlins can get back to making Vince Velasquez their punching bag in that outing, which will be in the ball game tomorrow with the off day tonight. But that is a favorable matchup for the Marlins. It'll be a tough one in game two. Aaron Nola just tied Tom Seaver's record by striking out 10 consecutive Mets. And now Nola will make his first start since then against, we'll see, for the Marlins. I don't know who they're going to bring in there for that start. Maybe Jordan Holloway. I don't know. I don't know if it's been announced yet. Maybe I missed it, but I'm pretty sure we don't know who's starting that game two yet against Aaron Nola. That should be a tough one. But then game three, which should be a good matchup, should be Pablo Lopez against Zach Eflin. Eflin's been good. Lopez has been very good. And it's going to come down to really situational hitting in that one, I think. And if the Marlins can get to Eflin, then you could take this series two out of three. I think it could really easily go either way, as any series can in the division. But what the Marlins do have going for them is the fact that the Phillies are not hitting the ball very well right now. They've scored less than five runs in six of their last seven. Their last couple ball games, they've scored four against the Mets. They scored three against the Mets. They scored two against the Mets. And then they scored one against the Mets. So not a very big offensive output from the Phillies. Yes, they faced a Grom in one of those games, but still not very encouraging from them. And if you look at their offense over the last 12 games or so, it's been a struggle for most of their guys besides Andrew McCutcheon. McCutcheon has been electric lately, and I love that. I know that the Phillies are a division rival, but I love me some Kutch, and he has been vintage over the last 12 games. I know it's a small sample size, but I'm always here for him doing well. He made a great grab a few games ago out in the outfield as well. He's 10 for his last 33. 303 clip, 1,000 OPS, three home runs. He's walked seven times, six strikeouts. So that's the guy that's swinging the hottest bat in their lineup right now. Unfortunately for them on the other side of things, it's a lot of struggles. Alec Bohm, who I absolutely love as a player, was one of my favorite prospects. He's picking up more base hits now. He's hitting 293 over his last 12 games, but he is not hitting for any semblance of power. And that's the weird thing is while he was never the biggest power hitter in the world, he was able to drive the ball gap to gap well. And with the short porch and right, he goes oppo as well as anybody. You figured he would tap into at least enough power, and he did last year. But so far, even hitting 293 over his last 11 games, he is only posting a 675 OPS. So he is not walking at all either, and he is not hitting for much power. That has been a disappointment for the Phillies with Bone because he's already a liability defensively. They've been one of the worst teams defensively in baseball, and that remains consistent right now for them from a majority of their positions besides catcher and JT Real Muto, who we know is one of the better defenders in baseball behind the dish, but he has not been swinging it well either. 182 over his last 12 games with one home run and a 552 OPS. It's been a struggle. Bryce Harper, he's been battling injuries, has started to get healthy, and he's a guy that I think will be a menace in this series. I think he's going to be a tough guy to get out. He seems like from the games that I've watched that he's just starting to get back into it. So that'll be somebody to watch as well. And Travis Jankowski, I don't know where he was. I don't know if they were stashing him in AAA, if they just signed him, where he came from. He's been doing pretty well for them, filling in in the outfield. 
But overall, a lot of the guys that you count on, Reese Hoskins, 163 over the last two weeks, the guys that you need to be counting on in Bohm, Hoskins, Real Muto, none of them have really been performing, and it's going to be interesting to watch that as we move forward here. The Marlins need to take advantage of that, especially with Rodgers on the bump and Lopez on the bump. You'd hope that they can keep that Phillies offense mostly stifled for the three-game set because then they're going to head over to play the Atlanta Braves. And the good news for the Marlins in that Brave series is it doesn't look like it'll be a Pablo Lopez start. And I will almost never say that, right? Because Pablo Lopez is one of the Marlins, if not the Marlins, most consistent starter over the last two years. It's right there, him and Sandy. And if you take out the Brave starts for Pablo Lopez, he probably has the leg up on Sandy statistically. So that kind of shows you how brutal he's been against the Braves. They just have his number, as I've mentioned in the past. They hit change-ups really, really well, and that's been the struggle for him as he likes to go to the change-up sometimes more than the fastball, and the Braves are just fine with that. So the Marlins are able to avoid, most likely, throwing Lopez against the Braves, where it should be Zach Thompson, it should be Sandy Alcantara, then probably Trevor Rogers if things go as planned, but things rarely do go as planned, so we'll have to see. Then, unfortunately, it's bad timing because then the Marlins have to take four games on with the Dodgers at home. The good news for the Marlins is that the six games heading into that series against the Dodgers are against some teams that are struggling. The Braves have not looked like the Braves at all, and the Phillies have not, and maybe they have looked like the Phillies. They've been pretty bad. So those two teams are teams that you'd hope that the Marlins can beat. If they can't beat them, given the state of both of those teams right now, then maybe the Marlins should be selling anyways. And I know it sounds weird to say because Atlanta is one of the most talented teams, but they just are not playing as such. And if the Marlins can't beat two struggling teams, then they probably should be selling. Heading into the Dodgers series, though, if you lose three out of four to the Dodgers, I would say that's just bad timing. doesn't mean they should necessarily be selling because the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, whether they're playing like it or not. They did just recently get no hit. They're not invincible, but they did get Tony Gonsolin back. The Marlins, it's very possible they could get Walker Bueller, Tony Gonsolin, and Kershaw in that same series. It could be very, very tough. Obviously, a lot can change heading into that, but there's a lot to unpack there. The Marlins could have a lot of difficult matchups in that series, but then the Marlins host Atlanta again, and we saw the Marlins play Atlanta really well. They were able to beat up on them pretty well. There's an intensity that they play with. You mix that intensity of wanting to beat Atlanta, who knocked them out of the playoffs last year, with the fact that they have the desperation that they need to win right now, and you would hope that they'd be able to take down the Phillies. So this is the good news. This month not only would have been telling anyways because of the fact that you have to figure out in the month heading into the trade deadline if you're going to win or not, but the Marlins actually can make a big dent in the division if they do end up winning. It's three against the Phillies, then it's three against the Braves, then it's four against the Dodgers, then it's three more against the Braves, it's three more against the Phillies, and then three against the Nationals. That would put you at July 22nd, where then the Marlins will start playing all over the map and they'll get the Padres, the Orioles, and the Yankees. So heading into the, at least within 10 days of the deadline, the Marlins will have almost all, almost exclusively division games aside from a four-game set against the Dodgers. So that's why I think it really is a telling time. If you're able to do well in those series, in the division series against the Braves and the Phillies a million times over the next three weeks, then you have your answer. And not only do you get your answer, you also close the gap on those teams because you're beating them and they're in your division. So there will be a lot to be sorted out in the next few weeks. And for better or for worse, we'll 
will have a very clear answer. I don't think there'll be much debate if the Marlins lose two out of three, two out of three, and then two out of three again in those three division series, then it's going to be very hard for Marlins fans, even the most optimistic Marlins fans, to say this team shouldn't sell. Because at that point, you might as well cash in on some of your prospect or cash in on some of your players for some prospects and see what you can get. That being said, that doesn't mean that you necessarily trade everybody. We're not trying to burn this down. You have controllable young pitching. Don't touch those guys. I know that some people have floated trading Pablo Lopez. You're out of your mind if you want to trade Pablo Lopez. He's 25 years old. He gets better and better every time we see him. You don't trade controllable pitching unless it's a specific situation like Zach Gallon for Jazz Chisholm. The Marlins, I think, are gone from those situations. They don't need to do that. They have enough prospect capital in the minors to go get the bat that they need or to go get a controllable bat, or even get another prospect, a prospect for prospect swap, like we saw, because Gallon was close enough to to being still a prospect, so to speak, but the Marlins could do it more so with upper-level minor league guys. Regardless, there is no reason to trade from your big league roster in the controllable starting pitching unless you're able to package uh, Zach Thompson or Poteet if those guys continue to pitch well. I know Poteet was just bad, but I think he'll be totally fine, and maybe Thompson can continue on his trajectory. Bullpen arms, though. If the Marlins do struggle, sell all of your bullpen arms. Maybe not Bender, as I clarified with Craig Mish recently, he wasn't sure either. We shot back and forth on the DM, and he told me that he looked into it, and I think he tweeted out shortly after about the the contract situation with Anthony Bender. So he is under control. I don't think the Marlins should necessarily trade him unless they are blown away with an offer. But overall, you can go trade. Nobody's going to want Anthony Bass, but Yimmy Garcia could probably get you a decent return just because the overarching numbers are pretty good, and he was good last year. People will give up something for him. You might as well cash in on Garcia ahead of his free agency. A few of the other guys, maybe Ross Detweiler, maybe Richard Blyer, even though I love Richard Blyer, you could probably cash in on those guys if you're struggling and get some decent returns and then replace your bullpen arms as the Marlins have so many fringe pitching prospects, starting pitching prospects that you could probably put in the bullpen that end up performing well. It would make a lot of sense for the Marlins to do that. And also, remember this too, and this is what's really important to me, I think, for the case to be made that the Marlins could end up just packaging prospects for a bat, whether it's now or in the offseason or heading into next year. If they're struggling or not, they can sell off some of those relievers, especially if they are struggling, and get some decent prospect depth on top of the 16 and 31st pick in this upcoming draft. You're going to still have an influx of young talent. Don't be afraid to trade away from your prospects if it's the right situation. I would love for the Marlins to go deep and just make a crazy offer for Cattell Marte because he would totally change the trajectory of this team, in my opinion, especially if they do let Starling Marte walk. Cattell could just end up playing center. You swap out one Marte for a younger Marte who's a switch hitter and can play all over the field, which also helps you given the fact that the Marlins will have some outfield prospects that may or may not be up next year. If they're not up, you keep Marte in the outfield. That's Cattell. And if they do come up, then you can move him to the infield and maybe Miggy Rowe isn't playing as much at that point. Or maybe you are shifting things around a little bit more and somebody else is playing third. There's a lot of moving parts there and having a guy like Cattell Marte would be very awesome to allow for versatility and be a huge offensive boost. I'm getting a little bit too optimistic there, but right now, I mean, the obvious goal, the obvious hope is that we don't get to that point. We get to the point where the Marlins start winning. They get on a nice little run here in a lot of division games, and then maybe they even look to buy. And if they do buy, it's for controllable pieces, right? It's not for a guy that's going to be a rental to help them right now after they were on the fringe of selling. It's going to be somebody that makes sense now and makes sense for the future. And that's the type of move like Cattell 
Cal Marte, that would make sense. And if he's too expensive, which he's not expensive financially, so there shouldn't be someone that's too expensive prospect-wise, in my opinion, unless it's a Max Meyer or no deal, or it's an Edward Cabrera or no deal. And even then, if it's the right player, I'm not ruling it out, given the starting pitching that the Marlins have already. And that'll be for another time where if the Marlins are losing, I'll start diving deep into those potential trade situations, trade negotiations, and what the Marlins can get in return for certain players. But let's hope that the Marlins keep winning and they don't have to sell off. And also, let's hope that the Marlins can maybe attain a player or two without giving up a massive, massive haul if they do decide to do that. But we haven't really seen the Marlins be willing to trade from the top of their prospect crop yet because they haven't gotten there yet. So we don't know how aggressive they'd be if that opportunity presented itself. But I would say the Zach Gallon for Jazz Chisholm trade was pretty aggressive in terms of giving up young talent. Yes, they got young talent, but they gave away a lot there. So we'll see what they decide to do and how they go about it. But this next month will be very, very telling. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the Marlins off day and it held you over. And I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.